Peter, I'd like to start with your book title, if I may, Getting at Jesus. That sounds like you've got some kind of aggressive disposition <laughs> towards Jesus. What is meant by the book title? Some people seem to display a bit of an aggressive disposition towards Jesus, particularly uh, members of the so-called New Atheist Movement that the book particularly engages with. Uh, so it is a bit of a pun of a title. There are, there are people who are sort of getting at Jesus, but I'm more interested in talking about how we get at Jesus, historically speaking. So, to what extent does, is the, the New Atheist articulation of, of, of their view of Jesus pretty much a common one in society, not one that's just restricted to people who write books. Yeah, I think they're quite influential. Uh, lots of people have read their books, have been bestsellers, of course, and a lot of the sort of fairly fringe historical views about Jesus that the movement tends uh, to push uh, certainly seem to be uh, gathering strength amongst uh, younger generations, for example. Uh, so uh, just one case in point, uh, a lot of the new atheists actually admit that Jesus did exist, but they do push forward a sort of scepticism about, well, maybe he didn't, or maybe there's not really much evidence that he did. Uh, and there was a poll showing that about 25% of sort of 18 to 30-year-olds, something around that sort of age group, uh, were sceptical uh, to some degree about whether or not uh, Jesus even existed. Um, and that kind of historical scepticism... Uh, I think is being uh, pushed and, and given renewed uh, emphasis uh, from this new atheist group of uh, writers. But let's, let's talk about the, the broader cultural norms in which this is, this is being discussed. You have a very interesting phrase in your book. You, you use the phrase sneer culture. And to what extent do we have a, sne a smear culture, or sorry, a sneer uh, culture? Mm -hmm. And uh, to what extent does that actually act as an important barrier towards interrogating the reality of the past? Yeah, I mean, all of us approach uh, thinking about different subjects with certain assumptions in mind. Uh, and the New Atheists are no different from uh, Christians in that regard. And I think the thing to do is to become aware of one's assumptions and to think critically uh, about them. Uh, now, the new atheists tend to approach the question of the historical Jesus with a philosophical assumptions in mind, such as miracles can't happen, or there could never be enough evidence to rationally convince you that a miracle has happened. So, although they seem to issue demands for uh, evidence, you know, I won't believe in the resurrection of Jesus unless you give me sufficient historical evidence to believe... Uh, that sounds like they're, they're making a demand that's open to them following the evidence wherever it leads. But actually, they also have uh, in their back pocket, as, as it were, a philosophical assumption that says, well, no amount of evidence could actually convince me that a miracle has happened, uh, which seems to me to be something of a, a double standard. Uh, and they push that double standard in, into culture through their uh, popular works and appearances in books and so on. Um, so uh, what I call uh, this sort of smear pressure, uh, for example, Richard Dawkins kind of saying, you know, ever since the 19th century, scholarly theologians have known that. And then he'll say a bunch of sceptical things about the Gospels or um, the, the 19th century was the last time anyone could... 
uh, could uh, admit to believing in miracles without it being embarrassing and so on, um, without being embarrassed by that. Um, now, those claims are not truths, but actually, um, sociologically speaking, um, there are plenty of people uh, alive today who uh, believe in miracles and are not embarrassed to admit it and so on. What's actually going on there is this sort of pushing of what I call smear pressure, of, of a peer pressure to kind of toe the line and to think about this subject in line with the philosophical assumptions that are in the background of this apparently sort of scientific, historical, empirical demand for evidence. They say the only way to know anything yeah, is evidence, say some of the new atheists. Now, I don't think that that's true. There are other ways to know things. But certainly when we're addressing questions about the historical Jesus, you want to ask questions about what's the historical uh, evidence, obviously. Um, but if you do that whilst at the same time holding an assumption that says, and I'm not really going to bother looking carefully at that evidence, because I know, because David Hume back in the 18th century argued that you can never have enough evidence to believe in miracles, and they generally appeal to, to David Hume's argument, actually, which the majority of philosophers of religion today think doesn't work. Um, there's a dichotomy there. Uh, you, they're giving with one hand and taking away uh, with another. So, to what extent is it demonstrable, do you think, mm. that Jesus was a historical figure who lived in Palestine around 2,000 years ago? No argument. Right. I, I, I think it is... Uh, nothing in history is 100% certainty, uh, but so far as uh, history of that kind of era goes, there's uh, more evidence to show that Jesus existed than many other figures, uh, on, on uncontroversial figures uh, of history. Uh, and that's simply because there are so many different independent sources uh, talking about Jesus not just Christian sources, but Jewish sources, Roman sources, uh, sources uh, that are independent of one another uh, and that all point uh, to the same conclusion. Uh, and uh, lots of other kind of standard historical criteria that historians will use to ask, you know, is this a good source of testimony about this topic? Uh, when you run uh, these sources of testimony about Jesus through these standard historical criteria, uh, then they pass those criteria very well. So even you know, the vast, vast majority of atheist, agnostic, Jewish uh, historians, classicists and so on uh, think that there was uh, a Jesus figure uh, back in first century Palestine. So if, if, if people are more or less pressurised, certainly through looking at the evidence rather than making assumptions, that Jesus was a historical figure. It only takes us some way uh, to sure. the point where you actually accept there is any great significance, such mm. as the significance Christianity would attribute mm. to, to this person. So, for example, he might have been a great uh, moral teacher. Mm. Um, uh, you know, to, to, to what extent is that a perfectly reasonable interpretation mm. of uh, who Jesus was? Right, so many, uh, even uh, you know, atheists will say, yeah, there was a Jesus, and I think he was a good moral teacher, and his uh, life gives us some good life lessons and so on. But I don't believe, uh, as one atheist philosopher put it, I don't believe the supernatural baggage uh, that comes with a Christian kind of belief 
in Jesus. And I think the, the, the key issue there has to be the question, well, what does the evidence show? And to be aware of the fact that um, we need to be aware of the philosophical assumptions, again, that we bring to that question. Uh, so if we're really asking the question, what does the evidence show, and we're willing to follow the evidence, if it's good evidence, where it points, we can't at the same time bring to that investigation a philosophical assumption like it's imp absolutely impossible that there's anything supernatural. Because obviously then no amount of evidence would be able to convince you. And you're not really open to following the evidence where it leads uh, because you have this, this dogmatic philosophical assumption in the background. But even atheists don't need to do that. Atheists can hold their atheism or their materialism or uh, their sort of naturalistic worldview as a working assumption that could be overthrown by good evidence. Uh, and if uh, you do that, uh, you may approach the subject of, you know, did Jesus rise from the dead? Uh, thinking, well, probably not, because I think miracles probably don't happen, but I'm open to being convinced otherwise if there's really good evidence. And then the question becomes, well, what is the evidence? What's the data? How do we go about assembling what the relevant data to take into account is? And once we've done that, what, what are the good ways to go around thinking, what is the best explanation of that data? What is the most reasonable historical story to tell about what actually happened uh, in the past? So to some extent you preempt my next question, which is, you know, what, what is the pathway that you personally feel it is legitimate to follow mm. to draw what is in the 21st century uh, rational uh, context of rational thinking quite an, an amazing claim that Jesus did miracles so yeah so you you need to have some quite extraordinary evidence I would have thought to make such an, an extraordinary claim I don't think this phrase about extraordinary evidence is actually particularly helpful. Uh, it's all too easy to that for that phrase to become, um, I won't believe in a miracle unless you give me extraordinary evidence. I'm not quite sure what the definition, what the criteria of being extraordinary evidence is, but I'm pretty sure that it means that whatever actual evidence you give me, it won't be enough. Therefore, I don't need to believe in a miracle. <laughs> That's kind of uh, where some people seem to come from at, at this. And I think it's much better to simply approach the question uh, with sort of standard criteria in hand for establishing relevant historical data to take into account and, and what the best explanation for things is. And just ask the question, what's the best explanation? What's the, the most reasonable story to tell uh, that covers the most of the most data, takes the most relevant data into account, that gives it the most explanatory power uh, to that uh, data, that explains things in the most economical way, and so on. These kind of standard criteria of explanatory scope, explanatory power, explanatory simplicity, uh, lack of being ad hoc, just made up in order to explain something. Um, so, uh, if you cover the question of the resurrection of Jesus, because that's the, the key issue here, the key miracle issue, 
I think using standard historical criteria uh, uh, that, e that you know, atheists and agnostics and so on will agree with, uh, you can arrive at the fact that, that Jesus existed and was crucified uh, and that he, he was dead. He died from the Roman crucifixion. Um, that there's really good uh, reason to believe that he was uh, buried in a tomb soon thereafter and that that tomb was pretty soon after that discovered to be empty. And then that various individuals and groups of people unexpectedly uh, sincerely believed that they met with a resurrected Jesus. Uh, and that the first generation of, of Christians, those Jewish followers of Jesus uh, as, as Messiah, whose hopes and expectations had all been dashed when he got himself crucified by the Romans, that they came to believe sincerely that Jesus had been, had been resurrected. Um, the question then becomes, what's the best explanation of that data? That data is not particularly controversial in terms of uh, historians and classicists and so on, whether they're agnostics or atheists or, or Jews or Christians of various types. The really controversial thing is to say, what's the best explanation of that data? One way of approaching that question would be to say, look, if a resurrection really did happen, that clearly would explain all of the data. It would explain why Jesus' tomb, in which his dead body had been laid, was empty. It would explain why people sincerely believed that they had met him. It would explain why people came to believe that a crucified man, which was culturally just absolutely beyond the pale, was the Messiah, was the Son of God. Um, it would explain the origin of, of Christian belief and so on. Uh, and the question is, is there a better alternative, a more powerful, more plausible, simpler, better explanation than the one that the original Christians uh, gave for their belief than Jesus really did rise from the dead? Now, reprising just a little bit on what you've said for the sake of clarifying something from earlier, when you talk about historical data, because you use that term quite, quite a lot, what do you have in mind? And, and I realise yeah. to some extent you've, you've covered that, but I'm going back to slip this in yeah. a little earlier, if I may. So when we do history, we, we do history through uh, sources of testimony, basically. Uh, and in terms of ancient history, that boils down to what we can recover and reconstruct of what people a long time ago wrote down. Uh, and we have to ask all sorts of standard questions like um, how far after the supposed event that they're talking about did they write that down or did their information get collected by someone and, and written down? Were they in a position to know what they were talking about? Um, uh, how accurate a reflection of what was, was written back then is the copy that we can reconstruct now? Uh, and so on. Uh, and when we're looking at the historical Jesus, the, the, there are non-biblical texts that are relevant, but the key historical texts, for obvious reasons, have been gathered together in, in to, between the covers of what we now call uh, the New Testament uh, in the Bible. Uh, and we want to ask serious historical questions to investigate those texts and so on. Um, but 
quite apart from the question of thinking, say, you know, is St. Matthew's Gospel a generally reliable historical biography of Jesus? Uh, even if you set aside that question, using the standard historical criteria, you could say, um, even if we were to assume that Matthew's Gospel is a generally unreliable source of historical testimony, if there are sort of nuggets of information, of testimony within that Gospel that pass, particularly that pass multiple historical criteria, things like... Um, People don't tend to just make up stuff that's embarrassing to themselves. So uh, when Matthew's Gospel says that the original witnesses to uh, the resurrection and the empty tomb and so on were women, in cultural terms of the day, uh, that would have been embarrassing uh, to whoever it was who wrote that, got that Gospel it would have been convenient for them in terms of trying to convince other people to believe what they did uh, to say uh, that some obviously reliable men had discovered the empty tomb first or had seen the risen Jesus first and so on. Uh, and the fact that they don't do that, that they say it was women, is a pretty good historical indicator that well, they said that because everybody knew <laughs> that that's what had happened, that it was the women who were the first uh, claimed witnesses, uh, and so on. Uh, and there are various criteria that historians use, like this criteria of, of embarrassment, like having multiple independent sources of, of testimony that say the same thing. Uh, and if you get bits of data that, as I say, data that pass multiple of these criteria, uh, you end up thinking, okay, these are the really trustworthy, in, in purely historical terms, the really trustworthy nuggets of information that we ought to take into account, even if we were minded to think that our sources of testimony about Jesus are, generally speaking, unreliable, uh, which I don't think they are. But that's a whole kind of separate uh, argument, and these different strands of argument uh, can, of course, run in parallel. The, the Gospels are the primary source of information about Jesus, I would think, you, you mean, clear to argue otherwise. And so their reliability is extremely important. How, how would you assess their reliability, especially taking into account the scepticism that says, well, you know, we don't even know who these authors were, and they were written decades after the events they purported to, to portray, and uh, who would really put their trust in documents which uh, were, were, were constructed under those circumstances, and we don't even know the originals anyway. So it's looking pretty black in terms of reliability. So the four uh, canonical Gospels uh, that are now in the New Testament are certainly our most fulsome sources of biographical information about Jesus from the first century. Uh, and scholars uh, a long time ago actually used to think that the Gospels were quite late. Uh, they would have said that maybe John's Gospel was as late as in the, the second century. But we now have manuscript uh, evidence uh, from uh, very early in the second century that shows that John's Gospel was probably written in the first century and it's agreed that John's Gospel is the latest of the Gospels so the other Gospels are earlier 
And these days it's not at all sort of on the fringes of New Testament scholarship to think, say, that Mark's Gospel might have been written sometime in the 40s AD. I have a, 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 a suspicion that Mark might have been written in 49 AD. And its publication in Rome may even have been what sparked writing amongst the Jews that the historian Tacitus tells us about. Um, but be that as it may, standard kind of datings for the Gospels, uh, and this again is not just like a Christian or conservative Christian dating, would put the Gospels in the first century, perhaps somewhere between the sort of 60s and 90s, uh, or even earlier. Uh, in the first century and in terms of ancient history those are really close sources if you compare that time gap between the events and when they're being reported about and you, and you look at that time gap for other sources of testimony about things that we reconstruct in history in the classical world um, we would in other historical instances rely on texts that come from a lot longer afterwards, after the original uh, events, than that. And that pattern is repeated time and again when you ask these standard questions like, you know, how long after the event were they written? Or um, how many manuscripts in different language groups and so on of a text do we have that we can use to reconstruct the original? Um, you look at other ancient texts and the number of texts, the number of different languages and so on. We reconstruct and rely upon texts in history, in classics and so on with a lot less data than is available for the New Testament. Uh, so one would have to think basically that if you're going to be sceptical about the uh, canonical Gospels, on the basis of things like, oh, they were written too late, or we can't reconstruct what the original said, you would, by the same, playing fair by the same rules, you would have to become sceptical about all of ancient history. I hear you. Very good point. So even if we accept the reliability of the Gospels, aren't they internally self-contradicting? I'm thinking, for example, about the... Uh, discrepancies, I'll call them, in the resurrection morning uh, accounts. I mean, no gospel actually tells the same story in terms of the chronology and the, and, and, and the details. So it's a shame that something that you're arguing is so reliable actually contradicts itself and therefore un undermines the very reliability that you're seeking to argue. So people will often criticise the gospel accounts, say, of uh, the resurrection uh, the discovery of the tomb, the resurrection appearances and so on, by saying they seem to, uh, at least on the face of it, contradict one another. I think there are a number of things that can be said uh, in response to this criticism. The first is uh, that it's beside the point in terms of us using the standard historical procedure of using these historical criteria to establish reliable bits of information that we need to take into account when we're reconstructing our story about what happened in the past. Uh, so, uh, supposing some of the Gospels do contradict one another about this or that detail, that doesn't mean that we can't use good historical investigative methods to establish uh, historical data that is reliable 
from those sources because they pass the standard criteria that historians use, such as multiple attestation, embarrassment, uh, and so on. Um, so it's really uh, a beside-the-point uh, uh, objection in, in those terms. Uh, another thing that can be said uh, is uh, I'm not particularly impressed by uh, the kind of examples that people point to as being uh, contradictions within the text. And this is particularly the case when you remember that these texts are written within the genre of ancient uh, history, ancient biographical uh, history uh, within a Jewish context and so on. And people often treat the Gospels as if they were modern biographies or modern works of history and, and hold them to the same kind of uh, cultural and linguistic standards and things. And it, there's no getting around getting into some particular examples here. Uh, so, for example, uh, people will point out that the, the Gospels say that the, uh, the tomb was discovered to be empty um, uh, on the third day or after three days and three nights. Uh, or so on. I think, well, isn't, isn't that a contradiction? Uh, well, it looks like it to uh, an English readership modern-day English readership. Uh, but if you know how uh, Jews in the first century measured time uh, and counted any part of a day or night as being able to stand for the whole of that day and so on, those are simply two different idiomatic Jewish ways of actually saying exactly the same thing. Or uh, an atheist I know uh, argues that if you read the end of Luke's Gospel, it looks like Luke is describing all of the resurrection appearances as happening on Easter Day in Jerusalem, which contradicts what other Gospels uh, hint at or narrate about Jesus making resurrection appearances in Galilee. And so there's a contradiction there. And indeed, uh, with what Luke says in the beginning of his follow-up to Luke's Gospel, the, the book of Acts, where in the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke says that Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days. Uh, so is Luke contradicting himself, or is there, is there something else going on here? I think there's an indication there's something else going on here. If you look in the original language, the Greek of Luke's Gospel, you can see that Luke stitches together his accounts of Jesus' resurrection appearances uh, with uh, the little Greek word D, D-E, Day, uh, which uh, gets translated in our English New Testaments often as like, and then. Uh, and so you read Luke and he says, uh, Jesus appeared to so-and-so, and then he did this, and then, and then. And it reads superficially like, oh, it's, it's all happening right one after another, and that must mean it's all on the same day. But the Greek term can also just mean, and then the next and the next thing that I'm narrating is one thing happened after another, but not necessarily directly after another. Um, so it could like it could be translated as and moreover this happened, and moreover this happened. And when you read the end of Luke's gospel in that way, 
you can see that, well, maybe this, this, and this, this happened on, on Easter Day, and then he uses the D, and moreover, here's another thing that happened. Maybe that happened several weeks later. Uh, and there's a gap in there uh, that's sort of hidden from our, uh, our eyes by the fact that we are uh, reading what Luke wrote in translation uh, of the original language and we, we lose that nuance and read how we would write uh, history into the text rather than reading out of the, the culture uh, the cultural background of the text to some extent I'm thinking as I hear the number of things that you're defending that we live almost in a kind of game culture in which people are, are chasing down as many problems as they can find almost like a kind of game and when they find one they use it as a reason to undermine the whole edifice and the whole building comes tumbling down I wonder two things if you, if you agree with that in which case perhaps you'd have to restate it in your own, your, your own words and to what extent you feel um, that really does act as a, as, a, as a serious barrier to a serious pursuit of truth if that's the mentality that we bring yes it's the mentality that we bring to the, our pursuit of truth in this area or any other the, the philosophical assumptions the cultural assumptions that we bring to the table with us have a huge effect on where we're going to end up. Uh, so even if you and I agree about what the relevant historical information to take into account is, we might interpret it very differently because of our differing philosophical backgrounds. Uh, and in that instance, we need to take a step back and recognise what our philosophical assumptions are and debate them and go into them and recognise them at least at least be able to say, I can understand why you think that Jesus rose from the dead, whereas I don't, uh, because you've got different philosophical assumptions than I do. And it would be interesting to talk about them. And if we can find agreement there, then maybe we can come back to this issue later and we'll find that we'll, uh, we will agree in one direction or another. Um, so it's, it's key to think not just in terms of... Um, you know, the historical information and how you explain it, but how we arrive at what we will agree to account as historical information and what kinds of explanation we'll even be prepared to bring uh, to the table as possibilities for explaining things will depend upon the philosophical, cultural assumptions that we bring uh, with us. That does not mean that our pursuit of truth is just subjective or just relative so on. what it means is that we have to try really hard to recognise and critically think about how we pursue truth what our philosophical assumptions are whether they help us to pursue the truth and to follow the evidence where it leads and so on or whether they're actually getting in the way of that process Do you think that in, in that process that scepticism is an ally or a foe, mm. a, a barrier or a catalyst? Yeah. I think if you treat scepticism as simply meaning we want to ask good, rational, critical questions about things, 
and to uh, follow the answers to those questions in order to try and be as reasonable as we can in uh, arriving at our picture of reality, then I think scepticism is a great thing. If you're just being sceptical for the sake of being sceptical, doubting for doubt's sake, uh, then I don't think that's going to be particularly helpful uh, to your pursuit of truth or uh, life in kind of any dimension. Uh, so it kind of depends what you mean by, which is a typical philosopher's answer uh, to a question, it depends what you mean by it. But if, if scepticism is just, let's ask good, sensible questions about what really happened in the past. How would we know? What is a good way to find out? Uh, then I think scepticism is a good thing and indeed something that the New Testament authors think is a good thing as well. I don't even know if this is a fair question, but you'll tell me. Um, I mean, I as an individual, you know, I'm representing hundreds of thousands of, of, of people, maybe, who hear what you're saying and think, yeah, Peter, you're right, I ought to pursue this with open uh, inquiry, but hey... I don't have the time to do that, so what I've got to do is read a book, mm. and that book will take me in one direction or another. It's extremely difficult for me to do this. How, yeah. how has, you know, people viewing this program who, who think, you know, I really would like to know, I really would like to, to get to, to the heart of this, but if I read Peter Williams' book, then he's just going to take me where he wants to take me. If I read Bart Ehrman's book, he's going to take me in that direction. I'm confused. What should I do? Yeah. Well, uh, one thing is to simply educate oneself in some of the basics of critical thinking, of being able to spot when someone is making a good argument and to spot when they're making a bad argument in ways that don't rely upon you being a specialist in that particular area of knowledge, uh, but to make yourself a specialist in are arguments being used fairly or unfairly? Is that a good argument or a bad argument? Uh, so that's one place you can start, and that's, that's a skill set that you can apply across the board, uh, even in areas where you may not be you know, a specialist in first century Palestinian archaeology, but you'll be able to tell whether the, the person drawing upon that, that knowledge set is making good arguments using their knowledge set or not. So that's one point. Another thing is, yeah, I think you're right to be a bit sceptical about thinking, well, I'll solve this issue for myself just by reading what one person thinks. You know, uh, uh, that's going to have its own biases and assumptions and so on, and you don't want to be misled by that. And, but, of course, it's going to take a bit of time to read several books on something and so on. Uh, and time is, is, is precious, um, but so is truth. So there's something for us to wrestle with there. What do we put an importance on in life in, in terms of what do we sink our time into? Uh, how much daytime TV do we really need uh, to watch? And so on. But you could read, for example, a book that's a debate between people who believe and don't believe in something. Uh, and see who you think makes the best arguments. So you're getting a more rounded view. Uh, so read uh, a debate book on the resurrection. Or go onto YouTube and look at a video, or a couple of videos of people debating uh, an issue. 
Uh, particularly if you've, again, got some of those uh, skills you've boned up on, on uh, who's making a good argument or not. Although you're not a specialist in the, the, the data, you'll be able to tell at least things like uh, who was making irrelevant kinds of arguments or really bad kinds of arguments, who would seem to actually be trying to pursue truth using good structures of arguments at least. Um, and that will give you uh, some more confidence in your ability to be able to assess what's going on. Helpful, thanks. And one other one that I would add is watch this programme where you'll find uh, the opportunity. Zoom, you're already doing that. Yeah, yeah, so, well, yeah. well, exactly. I, I would like to, to, to come back in on, um, you said about the Gospels being the most important, and I said sort of most fulsome sources of biographical information. I think it, re- it is really important to note that we have other sources of data about Jesus, uh, particularly in the New Testament, that are even earlier than the Gospels. Uh, uh, and that quote uh, early Christian hymns and creeds and so on that predate even those documents themselves and that scholars generally think go back to the 30s AD, back to the original followers uh, of Jesus uh, within uh, years or even months of the crucifixion. So when you're looking at information like uh, Paul quoting the early Christian creed about the resurrection appearances that he quotes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he, he's saying to people he's already met, remember that I passed on to you this sort of formal arrangement of information that I had myself received from the first followers. And he gives this list of the resurrection appearances or um, letters uh, like the letter of James uh, which, uh, particularly if it was written by James, the brother of Jesus, but whoever wrote it was clearly a, a, a first century Jewish follower of Jesus uh, in the time before Christianity had spread out into the Greco-Roman world, when it was really just a, a sect of Judaism that thought Jesus was the Messiah, the divine Son of God. Uh, and that talks about... Uh, the early, very, very early Christian view of Jesus as really being divine. And in, in the Jewish context, James uh, talks about uh, not only Jesus as, as Lord, uh, in the way that Jews would talk about Yahweh as the Lord, but also talks about uh, Christians who are being persecuted by non-Christians, although Christians weren't even called that then, they didn't call themselves that. Uh, the term Christian started as a term of abuse from outsiders and he says those who are blaspheming the noble name that owns you those who are blaspheming the noble name that owns you this is an Old Testament formula for the, the people of God Israel being owned by God being owned by the name of God and he's now applying this to the abuse that followers of Jesus are getting for being followers of Jesus. So I think in historical context, it's clear that he's talking about this outsider coining the term Christian, which literally means sort of Christ slave, Messiah slave, uh, and he's saying that people who are using this terminology are blaspheming the noble name that owns you, which is a parallel to God's ownership, uh, which is a parallel to God's ownership 
of the people of God in the Old Testament. And I think that, that's a very strong indication of how James, whoever wrote the letter of James, is viewing Jesus from a really early Jewish context uh, follower of Jesus in the first century. And the, the book of James, I think there's very strong historical reason to think it, it predates the fall of Jerusalem uh, in 70 AD, and it, it may date, it may well date as early as sort of 45 AD, which given that Jesus was crucified in 30-33 AD, that's astonishingly close historical uh, information reflecting people's view of Jesus, or at least some people's view of Jesus, very close to the events. Just on the subject of picking things up, um, I wonder if you would say just a sentence or two about what you mean by the embarrassment of using women's testimony. You explained very well that it was an embarrassment, yeah. but why should it be? Okay. Uh, it's an unfortunate truth that first century culture uh, was not kind to women and did not look upon women as serious people serious sources of testimony and so on. Uh, It's not true to say that women were not allowed to give testimony in legal contexts, but their ability to do so was certainly uh, very restricted and they were viewed as sort of second-class witnesses. Uh, If you were just making up a story, particularly one that your culture was going to find implausible and you wanted uh, to do uh, the best by uh, give yourself the best chance of convincing other people to believe this story that you're spinning them, uh, you would include male witnesses. And you see that in the later Gnostic uh, Gospels, for example, where uh, uh, in the Gospel of Peter, I think it is, the Gnostic Gospel of Peter, Jesus comes out of the tomb and you have witnesses there, male witnesses there, to see uh, Jesus and the cross coming out of the tomb and this sort of uh, strange apocalyptic uh, imagery happening. Uh, but it's all being conveyed through, through the, the figures of, of male witnesses. But the New Testament Gospels don't do that. They tell this countercultural, uh, uh, unexpected story of the tomb being found empty and then uh, a single, that single individual person who was crucified as a blasphemer, uh, such a culturally shameful death, um, that he's been resurrected uh, and vindicated by the Lord. Uh, And who do they use uh, as the primary witnesses to try and convince their fellow Jews that this has happened? A bunch of women. And it even admits within one of the Gospels, it says the women came and told the disciples uh, about their experiences and the disciples didn't believe them because it seemed to them like you know, the babbling of women. Um, We've been talking about sources and the reliability. Why are some competitors for true sources rejected then? You mentioned the Gnostic Gospels, for example. Sure. So people often wonder whether the, the so-called Gnostic uh, Gospels might uh, be competitors of information to the, the so-called canonical Uh, four Gospels in the New Testament. And the reason that they're not is simply that they're too late uh, to be good sources of historical information. The four Gospels in the New Testament are are only first century Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels are later than that. Even possibly the earliest Gnostic Gospel, so-called, is the Gospel of Thomas, 
which seems to date from uh, the middle of the third century, something like that. Uh, I can check that date for you, but certainly the Gospel of Thomas, uh, there are indications that it's based uh, upon a work called the Ditesseron, which is uh, an early attempt to sort of compend the four canonical Gospels into one storyline and to put the sources together. Uh, and there are indications in the text of uh, Thomas that Thomas is drawing upon that later Christian text which draws upon the four Gospels. Uh, so it's a later source of information. Uh, and also, unlike the, the canonical Gospels, which um, the, the tradition says are written by people like uh, Matthew, who was frowned upon for being a tax collector and collaborated with the Romans, in other words. Uh, or uh, Mark's Gospel. Mark is a very minor figure. And although tradition says he was working as, as Peter's secretary and, and got a lot of his information from Peter, one of the most important disciples, if you were just making up who the author of the Gospel was, why wouldn't you say, it was Peter? Well, that's what you do with like, the Gnostic Gospel of Peter. It's far too late to have actually been written by Peter, but to give it an imperature of authority, you, you, you say, yeah, it was written by Peter. This is the Gospel according to Peter. Um, and so the first century Gospels, they don't um, strain to try and give themselves credibility in the terms of their own culture in a way that now looking back upon things uh, actually rebounds to the credibility of those Gospels, whereas the, the Gnostic Gospels, which do strain to try and give themselves, puff themselves up with big titles and so on that, that can't actually be plausible, we can see that they're just trying to, to big themselves up. The original Gospels don't try to big themselves up because they didn't need to. Let's come to the central figure as we approach the end of this conversation uh, about Jesus. The central figure is Jesus himself. Yeah. And there are some who claim that um, all that is claimed about him is just an interpretation that is not easy to substantiate. And so the question becomes, who did he think he was and how certain are you of the answer? Yeah, who did Jesus think he was? In the conclusion uh, to my book, Getting at Jesus, uh, I spent some time looking at things that I agree with particular New Atheist writers about. And the New Atheists are known for, generally speaking, very, very sceptical, uh, having lots of doubts about the historical reliability of the Gospels and, and the information about Jesus and so on. But actually, uh, New Atheists recognise at least some of them recognise that Jesus believed himself to be divine. Uh, that Jesus wasn't uh, a, a lying con man and that he seemed to be sincere about that. Uh, that he wasn't someone who was just off his rocker uh, and displaying the signs of psychosis and so on. Uh, Sam Harris, for example, talks about Jesus and Buddha and Lao Tse and the other sages of history. Um, so there has to be a reflection there of the fact that actually there is good historical evidence uh, to say that not only that Jesus existed, not only that uh, his very early followers came to believe that he was divine, 
But as I said, they came to believe that you can show very early. They didn't come to believe that later after a sort of evolutionary process of thinking about it, getting out into the context of the Greco-Roman world, who believed in, you know, demigods and Hercules and so on. Uh, and that as Christianity spread away from its Jewish roots, this idea that Jesus was not just the Messiah, but was the divine son of God, sort of gradually grew up. Uh, this sort of uh, myth-growing idea, this evolution of our view of uh, people's view of Jesus. That didn't happen. The view that Jesus was the divine son of the God of Judaism arose from the first generation of Jewish followers of Jesus, as you can th see from documents like the Epistle of James. Um, and that, of course, raises the question, well, why did they believe that? Where did they get that belief from? Um, how could they have so radically misinterpreted what Jesus was telling them if Jesus himself hadn't done things that had encouraged them to adopt that view of him? Uh, and so we have early, really historically early, and multiple and independent and so on sources of information that all point to this conclusion that Jesus really had this very high view of who he was, of the role that he thought he should play in our relationship with God. So this is my last question on this area. This is 2,000 year old history. Why does it matter? We have been talking about 2,000 year old history, but it, it matters because if it's true, if the Christian understanding of Jesus, which I've just been arguing is basically Jesus' understanding of Jesus, if that understanding of who Jesus was is true, then it is true today that that is who Jesus is. Because he wasn't just claiming to be a prophet from God with a message for us, or a great moral teacher whose way of life we should try and emulate, or something like this. He was claiming to be the divine son of God who was the way for us to enter into a relationship with God. And so he's, he's part and parcel of God revealed uh, to the Jews, now revealing a new covenant relationship that was going to include not just the Jews, but as the Old Testament had always promised, a new covenant that would include the Gentiles as well. And Jesus was saying, I'm it, folks. I am God's self-revelation to you, holding out the hand of forgiveness and friendship and relationship take my hand, come with me into the kingdom of the Father. You know? And if that's true, wow! Uh, and if it's not true, it's really important that we find that out as well. Uh, the one thing it can't be, as C.S. Lewis famously said, uh, was uh, if that Christianity just, it, it couldn't be a sort of uninteresting, irrelevant thing. It was sort of either a really dangerous, dastardly <laughs> conflict or misunderstanding uh, that was really deceiving people uh, or uh, 
the most marvellous uh, revelation of truth. There are some people who, of course, would say, well, it can be true, because if it was true, if it were true, um, there wouldn't be a God in heaven who was prepared to preside over our suffering. To what extent does suffering and evil contradict all of that? So I think it's clear that the whole problem of suffering and evil is the biggest objection to belief in the kind of God that Christians believe in. It's not actually an objection to theism, a belief in God per se. Uh, It's an objection to belief in a God who created the world and knows about it and cares about it and is all-powerful and all-loving and so on. But that's the kind of God that Christians believe in, so we have to wrestle with this question. Uh, Huge area, let me just say a couple of things really quickly, if I can. First off, um, traditionally philosophers used to think that there might be an argument here that proved that God couldn't exist. That the the obvious existence of evil could be used in an argument that disproved God. Today, amongst philosophers of religion, even amongst atheist philosophers of religion, there's a general agreement that that's not the case. And the debate amongst philosophers has moved on to the question of whether or not and to what extent evil may, to some degree, count against belief in God. And of course, you might end up saying, evil does count against belief in God, but there are other reasons to believe in God and on balance I think there's a God and so on. Uh, So even if you do think that evil counts against God maybe there's enough reason and experience and so on uh, to believe uh, in God and part of the the sort of process of balancing up the evidence as well that you need to take into account is of course the revelation about well, who is Jesus? What is the evidence that Jesus uh, is who he thought he was? Particularly, what is the evidence that he really rose from the dead in vindication of his views? Because if the Christian understanding of, of Christ is true, that would show that God is not a God who's sort of just out there and created the world and is remote from it and its suffering and so on, but that it's a God who entered into Uh, into the life of the world by becoming one of us to live life alongside us to die for us a a horrible mutilating uh, death on a cross uh, for us uh, in the process of reaching out uh, to us and establishing this uh, new covenantal relationship uh, with all uh, that's open to to all of humanity and so on Uh, God who uh, in a sense, you could say, uh, it, for the sake of having a relationship with beings who have the freedom, the free will given them by God that allows us to reject relationship with God, and to reject doing the right thing, which is the only way in which we're empowered to have the freedom to choose to do the right thing and to choose to accept relationship with God, that in order to permit that, God is willing to suffer our sin, our own rejection of the right thing, our own rejection of him. Uh, You might look upon the cross as God's way of, of sort of figuratively displaying to us the suffering that God 
is willing to put himself through for the sake of relationship with humanity uh, that can begin now and which will flourish eternally uh, in what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, so there are, there are signs there within the Christian story, there are resources within the Christian story that might make you look upon um, the evils and the suffering involved in life here and now, which the, the Bible absolutely recognises with and grapples with, but puts that within the context of what God is doing in and through creation that might give you a new perspective on it. So just a couple of things quickly. Um, you mentioned the Bible and its, it's mention of, 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 of suffering. I, mean, I think a lot of people might be surprised to learn, maybe that might be the right verb, that the Bible actually does not find suffering a surprise, but actually no. um, predicts it, yeah, takes yeah. it as a normative. Absolutely. Jesus, for example, was well acquainted with the Old Testament literature uh, that grapples with suffering. You read the book of Job, read the, some of the Psalms where the psalmist is calling out to God, you know, why is there all this injustice in the world? When are you going to answer us? When are you going to make things right? Jesus himself uh, called upon people to pick up their cross and follow him. You know, Come and follow me, guys, and really suffer. That was his off offer, in a sense. Uh, to people, he said, we had to uh, to uh, to die to self in order to live to the new life that God was was offering us, and that following Him would involve being persecuted by those who hated Him. And he said, you know, rejoice when people call you names because uh, for my sake, because of my name, and so on. Uh, so Jesus predicted that his followers would suffer. For him, he didn't say, "Come and follow me, and everything will, you know, come up roses for you." Now, in the long term, in the new heavens and the new earth, all things will will come right. You know, all things will be well, as Julian of Norwich famously said. Um, but Jesus was well acquainted with suffering. His followers were well acquainted with suffering, uh, and this uh, so-called, you know, health and wealth gospel uh, that comes out of uh, some parts of the church, particularly in, in situations of, of poverty, can be very appealing to think that you know, here is a solution that's going to make life wonderful and better here and now and solve all your problems. You know. uh, Jesus doesn't offer that. Uh, the problem that Jesus is offering to solve is this problem of our, of our own sinfulness, our own inability to do the right thing, our own falling short of God's perfect goodness, uh, a perfect uh, goodness that, uh, you know, if it were our task to become good enough for God, we would never make it. But actually Jesus is saying, you know, we're going to solve this problem from the other end of the stick, as it were. I'm going to reach out uh, and suffer on your behalf uh, and then help you to become more like me uh, as you follow me. Just over a week ago, we were interviewing a Holocaust survivor, mm. and we were featuring that as part of our program and asking the question, "Why does God not intervene?" Do you have anything to offer on that? Yeah, it's a really tough one, particularly when you raise particular instances of evil. 
to ask the question, then why did God allow this or that? Why didn't he prevent this or that? And I don't think we know. I don't think we're in a position to know. And therefore it's not particularly surprising that we don't know. And therefore there's not really an, a sort of argument against belief in God in the fact that we don't know. Because, well, why would we expect to know the answer to that kind of question? Um, we can look at the sort of general picture. Uh, Christians obviously believe that sometimes God does intervene within the world. That's what the story of, of, of Christ says to us. Sometimes God does intervene. But clearly he doesn't always intervene. Certainly you can say, if what you're wanting is to say, you know, God should step in right here and right now to get rid of all evil, well then, you know, who of us would be here the next second? God seems to have a, a, a longer term method of dealing with uh, evil than perhaps we would like. Um, but it is a method of dealing with evil that allows there to be creatures such as ourselves with this freedom to shape our characters and to make genuine choice about character and relationship over time um, that allows there to be genuine relationship and genuine love and so on. And I guess often the, the question that we're asking about suffering really kind of boils down to the question of is the pain worth the gain or is the pain going to be worth the gain in the long term at least uh, and there's I guess you could say a view the view within Christianity is that the answer to that question is that yes the pain at least will be worth the gain um, we won't really be in a position to feel the truth of that answer perhaps until we ourselves are in the new heavens and the new earth. We find it very hard to weigh in the balance things that we haven't yet experienced for ourselves. But it's nonetheless, it's still reasonable to think as a Christian that it will be the case, that it will have been worth it, and that life and the problems inherent within living life here and now are worthwhile. It's a worthwhile struggle rather than a meaningless, pointless struggle which life is on a materialistic, atheistic worldview. And if, I, if you might just reiterate the point succinctly, mm. that would be helpful. I think I heard you say, I know I heard you say a few moments ago, that the dilemma of suffering is not a sufficient problem to dislodge yeah. the whole edifice of belief in God on account of all the yeah. reasons there are to believe. Could you put that in a kind of sure. form for me? Sure. So even if you think that evil counts a bit, a bit against God, the question becomes, well, how much and what other things do you have to take into account? So it might be, like in a court case, that one witness's evidence points to the guilt of the accused, but that doesn't mean that therefore they must be guilty because there's other evidence to take into account. A key thing here that one might say is that when dealing with the problem of evil, 
you really have to appeal to some sort of objective, out there to be discovered notion of good and evil. But where do we find that standard of goodness that things fall short of if we exclude from our picture of reality a perfectly good God? If we say all there is in reality is uh, atoms in the void, what is it that obligates us, objectively speaking, to do the right thing? What does it mean to talk about the right thing to do in uh, a worldview that reduces everything to time plus matter plus chance? It just doesn't seem to fit. Whereas at least a, a theistic worldview gives you somewhere to fit this notion of an objective standard, an objective obligation to do and to be good by saying maybe there is a, a personal reality that's therefore able to, to obligate us, to command us and so on, and that that reality is trustworthy, is himself, itself good, uh, so that we can fit into our view of the world this, uh, this transcendent, not dependent upon us, standard of goodness that's able to obligate us in a way that non-personal or impersonal things just obviously can't. And so to point to evil is actually to point to something that is in itself one of those clues to the existence of something more than just this world of matter and so on. That points to something, to someone good and transcendent beyond us. And that is at least part of what Christians mean by God. Great, Peter, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for all that.